What's up, everybody, and welcome to The Reluctant Historian. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson, and this is our Reluctant Historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history, and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. All right, so this year, in July 2021, the Canadian government passed federal legislation making September 30th a federal statutory holiday called the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So this podcast is coming out on the 29th, the day before the 30th, and to honor the day, we have decided to do our episode on the history of residential schools in Canada. Yeah, so it's going to be a little bit of a different episode, a little bit more of a serious take, but uh, I think it's uh, something, you know, that uh, I don't know a ton about, and I want, I people should know more about it, so I think that it's it's good that we're talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. I have, a, I have a quick question before we begin. So you said it's a, prov- or sorry, it's a federal statutory holiday now. Yes. Uh, but it's not provincial, is it? No. So I'll okay. get into that. Okay. Okay. Because we we brought that up at our um at a, at a meeting and that and yeah, I was just curious because I, I didn't know it was. I knew it was um Truth and Recon- Reconciliation Day, but I didn't know it was like considered a, a statutory federal holiday. So right. that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, So sit down, buckle up, and get ready to listen to the history of residential schools in Canada. like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. So before I start, I want to talk about a few things. Uh, first of all, if you are a survivor of residential schools and need assistance, or you know that this topic could be triggering for you, the Indian Residential School Survivor Society is an organization that can provide support for you. If you are in crisis, call 1-800-721-0066. If you would like to provide support for this organization, I have linked their information in our show notes. Second, I also want to recognize that Dakota and I are not Indigenous and understand that the story of survival is not our story to tell. Instead, there are many great podcasts out there that do talk about this, And we have linked a few of those in our show notes as well, so you can go listen to them. So instead, I'll be looking at the history of these schools, in quotation marks, the Canadian government's involvement in them, and the trauma and repercussions that have occurred because of these institutions. And I'll be trying not to tell the story of Indigenous people's survival. Okay, that sounds good. So this summer, 2021, the whole world was rocked by the discovery of unmarked graves of Indigenous children on the grounds of residential schools in Canada. So far, more than 1,300 suspected graves have been found. These unmarked graves are a horrific reminder of the cultural genocide that the Canadian government inflicted upon the Indigenous people when they colonized Canada. Partly in response to this, the government of Canada has recognized September 30th as a day to honour survivors. It's also call to action number 80 in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee's calls to action. Today, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is a way for Canadians to recognize and commemorate the legacy of residential schools. So interestingly, Saskatchewan will not be recognizing this day 
as according to a statement from the Ministry of Labor Relations and Workplace Safety, it would require a legislative change in order to make it apply as a statutory holiday for provincial employees. But just for just for Saskatchewan? Uh, Alberta is also in that same boat. Well, that's not overly surprising that it's the two of us. <laughs> no, I <laughs> we, mean... We are often uh, the putzes of Canada. <laughs> so. Yes, and... I mean, to say, oh, it's too hard for us to change yeah, a law. Yeah, that's like, oh, you're so fucking privileged. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. So it's similar in the sense of Remembrance Day. So Remembrance mm-hmm. Day is also a federal holiday um, that people would get a day off. Um, yeah. Manitoba, uh, some of the provinces out east don't recognize it as a provincial holiday. Mm-hmm. Um so it's kind of sort of similar, not really. It's similar in the sense of it being mandated um, in that sense. So provinces can choose whether or not they want to recognize it. And we just chose not to, I guess. Essentially, yeah. Uh, good job, Saskatchewan. Yeah. Different organizations across Saskatchewan are commemorating the day regardless. So, for example, both the University of Saskatchewan and the City of Saskatoon are, with the university stating, we hope our campus community can use the time to learn reflect, and contemplate how we can do our part to eliminate structural and overt racism and other forms of discrimination on our campus, in our communities, and across the country. So, some... There's something... Some people are like, yeah, we need to do something. Yeah, some people are like, maybe reconciliation is important. Yeah. Just not Scott Moe. No, I was going to say, I'm just like, just just not Scott Moe. He's just, uh, he's so busy with this uh, pandemic, just, you know, <laughs> blaming doctors. And, yeah, and indigenous communities. And indigenous, oh yeah, that's the other thing. So he doesn't give a fuck. No. No. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I guess there's, we probably have a lot of Saskatchewan, non, non-Saskatchewan listeners. So, uh, our premier, uh, blamed well, you t- you would probably tell it better. What did he do? He so blamed- he said a lot of our unvaccinated people are from far north in indigenous communities, where less than 50, or 50% of those people have been vaccinated, neglecting to mention that in rural areas like Swift Current, only 12% of their population, which is like really? his constituencies. That's really freaking low. <laughs> right? And then he went on to say that this is a great opportunity for doctors to educate people. Yeah. Not like they haven't been doing that yeah, the no entire ki- pandemic. No kidding. And uh, you know, they're they're pretty busy also. <laughs> yeah. But we're getting a little bit away yeah, from yeah, the Yeah, yeah, let's get let's get this. back to it. Yeah. So, what were residential schools? Well, they were government-sponsored religious schools that were established to assimilate indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. So, in fact, in 1920, one of the architects of the residential school system, Duncan Campbell Scott, mandated school attendance, stating, quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think, as a matter of a fact, that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and that there is no Indian question and no Indian department. What the fuck? So, essentially... Yes. What what was the time frame on this, I guess? That was in 1920. So residential schools started roughly 1880 and ended in 1996. Which is crazy. I mean, I'm sure we'll maybe get to there, but that's crazy that they just ended in 1996. Like, that was 25 years ago. Right. (laughs) Not that long ago. Right. Residential schools were created by Christian churches with the Canadian government as an attempt to both educate, and I say that very loosely... Uh, because it was not like a lot of education going on, uh, and to convert Indigenous youth and to assimilate them into Canadian society. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, 
uh, it's what Jesus would have wanted, right? Really, when they're, they're doing this, do they ever think like, ah, what would Jesus do? No. I feel like not this, you no. know? They did this by forcefully removing indigenous children, some as young as five, from their families and communities and placing them in residential schools where they would live for months, sometimes years, on end, never seeing their families. This has caused long-term trauma among indigenous people. Beginning in the 1870s, both the federal government and the Plains Nations wanted to include schooling provisions in treaties, although for different reasons. Indigenous leaders hoped that Euro-Canadian schooling would help their young to learn the skills of the newcomer society and help them make a successful transition to a world dominated by strangers. Of course, First Nations did have educational systems prior to colonization. However, they were not what the settlers would have counted as education. Indigenous ways of life were profoundly and violently disrupted by the arrival of European traders, fishermen, missionaries, and settlers. The effects of these changes left Indigenous communities without their traditional livelihood on one hand and without the skills and resources to take on a more European lifestyle on the other. The federal government, on the other hand, supported schooling as a way to make First Nations economically self-sufficient. Their underlying objective was to decrease Indigenous dependence on public funds. This resulted in the government collaborating with Christian missionaries to encourage religious conversion and Indigenous economic self-sufficiency. Facing the resilience of Indigenous traditional education in Canada... Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald sent a man named Nicholas Davin to the United States to see how they had dealt with the Indigenous people there. At the time, the U.S. had developed a policy of aggressive assimilation of the Native Americans. The key to this policy was a system of industrial schools, where religious instruction and skills training would help the Indigenous catch up with the demands of Western society. In a confidential report to the Canadian government, Davin advised Canada to follow this model. His report became the founding document, which specified the terms within which industrial schools functioned for almost a century. The assumption behind Davin's proposal was that if Indigenous children and youth were separated from their families and educated in the European tradition, they would abandon their traditional values, customs, and lifestyle. Moreover, when the students returned home, they would bring these Western ways to other community members. Religious instruction and discipline became the primary tool to civilize, quotations, indigenous people and prepare them for life as mainstream European Canadians. So by taking them away from their families, they were able to send them back in theory to teach their family, be like, hey, mom, check out my skateboard tricks or whatever us white people do, you know, like... Yeah, in theory. So you've got it right there. So the I, well, I'm just, sorry, I'm just like, well, one, I'm just thinking about, you know, my dad <laughs> never listen to a fucking thing I say. <laughs> so I, I don't know how they thought that. Well, I mean, there's many things wrong with it, but I, I want to target this specifically right now is like the, the, that's that doesn't sound like sound logic because. I don't know how things were in the 1920s, but... Uh, well, this is the 1870s. 1870s, whatever. Well, even even back then, I, I don't think parents are listening to their kids, you know. So I, I doubt they're going to, you know, come back to their family and their family's just going to be like, yeah, you got it right. Yeah. Kid. Yeah, you know, probably not. Like, parents don't listen to their kids in that way. <laughs> no. So that's just... There's just a lot of flawed logic from that standpoint. Yeah. So to achieve this goal, Prime Minister Macdonald authorized the creation of new residential schools and granted government funds for those that were already in place. Macdonald, like others in the government administration, was very clear about the need to break the connection between their students and their communities. So they weren't actually wanting to... No, no. Yeah, it's, it's more of a... Um, it's like a cover. Yeah. 
When the school is on the reserve, he said, the child lives with his parents who are savages. He is surrounded by savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. Fuck. Mm -hmm. So two models of schooling were pursued, industrial and residential schools. The industrial schools were to focus on rudimentary farming skills and trades. Those were not boarding schools, although the students often lived in a separate building on site that served as a hostel. The residential schools were to be more academic, though they too offered training in farm work for boys and domestic skills for girls. While a far cry from the boarding schools for Canada's privileged youth, these offered full board for First Nation students as they were government-funded. The reality of the industrial education model was not based on principles of schools or academic enrichment, however. Rather, the system was founded on principles of reformatories and jails established for the children of the urban poor. So their model was a jail. Jesus. From 1883 onward, the federal government sought a system to enroll Indigenous children in school. Day schools, which were church-run schools, operated on reserves, and industrial schools were to serve alongside the residential schools. It is estimated that a great number of Indigenous children were educated in day schools, although the residential schools left the most painful, long-lasting mark on Indigenous communities. So day schools were ones that were on the reserve land, um, and the kids would go to for school for the day and then leave, but still run by the church. Okay. Were those ones also abusive? Yes. Okay. Day schools, too, were operated by municipal authorities and the churches, and thus they attempted to reach the same goals that the residential schools were. So kill the indigenous person right, they're the same. to save the child. So they were the same, except you could go home at the end of the day? Essentially, yeah. yeah. As a result, many of the troubles and abuses found in the residential schools were also found in day schools. Mm. The cost of the residential school program was more than the federal government was willing to provide. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, classic. Despite its talk about the urgent need to civilize Indigenous peoples, the government was determined to educate them on the cheap, relying on the churches and their supporters to help. In short, the schools were continually running at a deficit, meaning that there wasn't money to make repairs to buildings, hire staff, pay adequate salaries, or to properly feed the students. The immediate result was increased pressure to use student labor to provide goods, food, and service. At about the turn of Good food and service. Goods food oh, and service sorry i heard good food and service i'm like again kids work can't work worth shit at about the turn of the 20th century some government officials also became aware that schools were not meeting their goals evidence of just how neglectful and dangerous the schools were for the students began to pile up reports of dilapidated buildings shortages of fuel for heating poor and insufficient diet unsanitary living conditions widespread illness and above all the general unhappiness of indigenous students the government provided little leadership, and the clergy in charge were left to decide what to teach and how to teach it. Their priority was to impart the teachings of their church or order, not to provide a good education that could help students in their post-graduation lives. Moreover, the distinction between industrial and residential schools was fading amid criticism that neither achieved much in the way of teaching meaningful skills or trades. Finally, in 1923, this distinction was abolished and both institutions became residential schools. So residential schools was at the beginning was like, oh, no, we're going to teach them reading, writing, arithmetic. Right. Whereas industrial schools were like, we're going to teach you how to work on a farm. Okay. And then at but, some point they converged just into residential schools. Yeah. Because neither were doing what they planned to do. Right. <laughs> um, so when it became residential schools, uh, industrial schools weren't a thing anymore. So they weren't teaching them how to farm and shit. Well. Or did it just all merge into one? It all merged into one. Okay. And a lot of work was actually just 
here, let's do jobs, and we're not going to actually teach you anything. Yeah, it was just basically child... Not basically, it was child labor. Yeah. Yeah. Because the government was too cheap to pay for anything. And things don't change, do they? No. At its height, around 1930, the residential school system totaled 80 different institutions. The Roman Catholic Church operated three-fifths of the school, the Anglican Church operated one-fourth, and the United and Presbyterian Churches the remainder. As of 2021, the Anglican, Presbyterian, and United Church have all apologized for their role in these schools, while the Roman Catholic Church has not, despite it being one of the calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report. So I wrote that last week. Okay. And then just recently, I think on Friday, you had sent me an article about the bishops were apologizing. Yeah. So I didn't really get into it, but what does that mean? Who is yes. apologizing? So it looks case? like it was the bishops of Canada have been apologizing. Okay. Um, and the actual call to action is that they want the Pope to come and apologize yeah. and come to Canada to apologize. So I didn't read further into it about what the Pope's, it, like what, what he was doing, but... Um, yeah. It's not exactly the call to action, but I guess it's a step forward. I hope he does, because I thought he was cool. Me too. Overall, the residential school system was a horrendous experience for the children who were forced to attend, and one that would have lasting consequences. Students were isolated, and their culture was disparaged and scorned. They were removed from their homes and parents and were separated from some of their siblings as the schools were segregated according to gender. They were forbidden from speaking their first language, even in letters home to their parents. The attempt to assimilate children began upon their their arrival to the schools. Hold on. So when they wrote letters to their parents, they had to speak English in them? Yes. But their parents didn't speak English. Well, because so many people started to be forced to attend them, you would also have, like, generations going there. So you could have, like, your grandparent attended one. So oh, that person would have do, spoken English. Oh, I see. So there was, like, so many... Uh... Yeah, generations, okay. But also a lot of them wouldn't have spoken English. Right. So, you're right. Their hair was cut and they were stripped of their traditional clothes and given new uniforms. In many cases, they were also given new names. Christian missionary staff spent a lot of time and attention on Christian practices, while at the same time criticizing or belittling indigenous spiritual practices. Until the late 1950s, residential schools operated on a half-day system, in which students spent half the day in the classroom and the other half at work. The theory behind this was that students would learn skills that would allow them to earn a living as adults. However, the reality was that work had more to do with the running of the school inexpensively than with providing students with vocational training. Tasks were separated by gender. Girls were responsible for housekeeping, which meant cooking, cleaning, laundry, and sewing. Boys were involved in carpentry, construction, general maintenance, and agricultural labor. School days began early, usually with a bell that summoned students to dress and attend chapel or mass. Students then performed chores, usually referred to as fatigue duties. Fatigue duties. Like, tire them out. No, I understand. I'm just like, that's what they called them? Yeah. They were not uh, very subtle about what they were trying to do. No. Which were done before breakfast. Breakfast. Before breakfast? Mm Mm-hmm. That's really freaking... How early did they have to attend, do you know? Like, um, I do. I have a picture that you're going to post on Instagram. Okay, just send it to me. Yeah, it's like 6 a.m., 5.30 a.m. they had to wake up? That's ridiculous yes breakfast like all meals was sparse and eaten quickly in the dining hall this was followed by three hours of classes or a period of work before breaking for lunch the afternoon schedule followed a similar pattern including either classes or work followed by more chores before supper time was also set aside for recreation usually in the afternoon or evening the evening closed with prayer and bedtime was early it was a highly regimented system 
religious instruction was the high priority and enforced vigorously. The goal for many of the religious orders was to convert the children to Christianity and replace indigenous values and spiritualism once and for all. In an effort to instill in the students the fear of the Christian God, some instructors frightened children with images of the horrors waiting for them if they did not embrace Christianity, such as the devil's going to get you. So, again, that's not the point. No. That's, like, the point is not to scare people into believing in God, because that is... No one's going to... Well, maybe some people, but it's like, that's a fucked up way to look at it, not the way that Jesus would want you to uh, come to God by uh, through fear. And he you know? wouldn't want you to remove every single thing that made an indigenous person that person. No. He wants you to be you. It's And, yeah. I don't know. That's super fucked up. On weekends, there were no classes, but Sunday usually meant more time spent on religious practices. Until 1952, holidays for many of the students included periods of work and play at the school. Only from the 1960s on did the schools routinely send children home for holidays. Therefore, many students in the residential school system did not see their family for years. Uh, so I have a schedule from the Capel Industrial School from 1893, and Coda's going to share that on Instagram so you can see what it looked like for the students. Overall, students received a poor education at the residential schools, obviously. This was true both in terms of academic subjects and vocational training. Students had to cope with teachers who were usually ill-prepared and curricula and materials derived from and reflecting an alien culture. Lessons were taught in English or French, languages that many of the children did not speak. Their overseers were harsh, and the supposed training purpose of the vocational work was limited or absent. Worse still, the attempted assimilation of Indigenous students left them disoriented and insecure, with the feeling that they belonged to neither Indigenous or settler society. Well, yeah, that's gotta be hella confusing as uh, how old uh, kind of kids five years old Mm -hmm. that's like that's got to be super fucking confusing for you you're taken away from your family you're taught that your culture is bad be like us but i imagine but we're not gonna give you any skills to be like us we're just gonna use you for labor so you're just caught in between of like who what am i who am i Mm -hmm. you know Exactly, oh, and and I mean, I I just wrote, wrote this down because this is a thought I just had, which was um, somewhere other there's uh, there are th- people in their thirties that attended these, right? Because the last one closed twenty five years ago. Mm-hmm. So there are people that are our age, roughly. Yep. That that went through this. Yep. And I mean, were they? By the end, by 1996, were they as bad as they were, or... I didn't um, actually read into that, so I'm yeah, not 100% I'm just, sure. I'm just curious if they're, um, if they tone things down, um... I imagine know. it must have been a little different. Yeah. I don't think they could have gotten away with it, especially in the 90s. That's when people got really vocal. The 80s and the 90s is when Indigenous people got really vocal about, you need to fix what happened. Yeah, so yeah. I can't imagine that they would have been exactly like this but yeah it just baffles me that this was still a thing in 1996 like that's i was alive when this happened yeah it was like yes you were it, it, that's that's something that i mean you don't often well it's good that this is making us think about that because that's not something that i normally would think about is like atrocities happening in my lifetime right you know mm-hmm. but they're were and still are absolutely and uh, it's just super fucked up Mm -hmm. that's what i'm that's that's this is basically my role in this in this episode is just to go that was fucked up yeah so do better yeah carry on um yeah so you touched on how they were split between 
two groups, essentially. Uh, because they were so inadequately prepared, and I would argue not welcome in white society, they didn't fit in there. Um, and then if they did end up surviving residential schools, they didn't really fit into their own community because of the attempts to remove their culture, language, and spiritual practices. So they didn't know how to belong in their home communities. Many students suffered horrific abuse at residential schools. Impatience and correction often led to excessive punishment, including physical abuse. Poorly supervised priests, nuns, and laymen often used their positions of power to carry out assaults on the defenseless children. In some cases, children were heavily beaten, chained, or confined. Fuck. Many students reported a loveless childhood, coupled with humiliation and degradation by the school staff. Over and above the daily suffering, the schools proved to be a breeding ground for all manner of sadistic verbal, physical, and sexual abuses. Some of the staff were sexual predators, and many students were sexually abused. When what? allegations... You didn't the, know that? Uh, I mean, no, I guess not, but uh, I'm just like... What is it about these places scums of the earth are just drawn to, like, sexual predators, you know? Like, it's... I don't know what it is, but it's just, like... Again, baffling. Yeah, I think I think they can tell when there's vulnerabilities of it mm, around. Yeah. And they're naturally drawn to that. Yeah. They can use their power. Yeah, I guess there's a power, power dynamic, but it's just... Um, you know, it's the, I guess it's the, 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 the sexual abuse thing that just like, that, that really gets me that it's like, um... when allegations of sexual abuse were brought forward by students, parents, or staff, the response by the government and church officials was almost non-existent. The police were seldom contacted. And even if the government or church officials decided that the complaint had merit, the response was often to just fire the predator. At other times, they allowed the abuser to keep on teaching. Really? Mm -hmm. So there are so many stories from survivors that recount their experience in regards to the trauma that they experienced, but I don't want to do trauma porn on this podcast, so we're not going to talk about it. Yeah, that's a good call. According to the TRC, at least 3,200 Indigenous children died in overcrowded residential schools. So the TRC was published in 2015, and we already know that at least 1,300 more students were found, so that number is probably incorrect. Due to poor record-keeping by the churches and federal government, it is unlikely that we will ever know the total loss of life at residential schools. However, according to the TRC chair, Justice Murray Sinclair, the number may be more than 6,000. And in light of the discovery of unmarked graves this summer, I would say it probably is way more than what we think. Yeah. So I always imagine, you know, you're sending your kid to school and they just don't come back ever. That's, yeah, I can't imagine that. I mean, um, you know, we don't have kids at this point, but like, you know, I have a, a niece and now two two nephews and I just can't imagine like, you know, uh, Rhea being just one day just sent to school and then just never see her again, you know? Mm. That's heartbreaking to mm -hmm. think about. Yeah. Underfed and malnourished, the students were particularly vulnerable to disease such as tuberculosis and influenza. Food was low in quantity and poor in quality, in large part due to the concerns about cost. Faced with limited funding, schools were instructed to observe the strictest economy in all particulars. In general, school menus were monotonous and nutritionally inadequate. Moreover, research by food historian Ian Mosby revealed that students at some residential schools in the 40s and 50s were subjected to nutritional experiments without their consent or their parents' consent. 
These studies were approved by various federal government departments and conducted by leading nutritional experts. They included restricting some students' access to essential nutrients and dental care in order to assess the effect of improvements made to the diet of other students. Wait, so guinea pigs, essentially? Yeah. What the hell? And like they had no idea what was happening. Wait, who didn't know what was happening? The children or their parents. Right. So these people were just like, oh, we're just going to test this to mm-hmm. see the effects on, on these kids. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nutritional deficiencies and overcrowding led to regular outbreaks of disease at schools. Tuberculosis and influenza were the major killers, but students were also affected by outbreaks of smallpox, measles, typhoid, diphtheria, pneumonia, and whooping cough. Although medical experts recommended measures to improve the health and medical treatment, they were not implemented by the government, largely due to concerns about costs and opposition from the churches. Indigenous students and parents resisted and protested the harsh regimes placed on them at residential schools. Some children refused to cooperate and sabotaged the operations of the kitchen or classroom, stole food and supplies, or ran away. At least 25 fires were set by students as a form of protest. The parents and political leaders protested the school's harsh conditions and shortcomings, though their objections were mostly ignored. Even the political leaders? So political leaders of the indigenous people. Oh, so they didn't give a fuck. Right. Basically. Yeah. By the 40s, it was obvious to both the government and most missionary bodies that the schools were ineffective and indigenous protests helped to secure a change in policy. In 1969, the system was taken over by the Department of Indian Affairs, ending church involvement. The government decided to phase out the schools, but this was met with resistance from the Catholic Church because they felt that segregated education was the best approach for indigenous children. Jesus. I don't know if Jesus thinks that. No. <laughs> No, he doesn't. <laughs> he would he would be up there in heaven going, ah, why, why, God. By 1986, most schools had either been closed or turned over to local bands. Ten years later, in 1996, Gordon Residential School in Punishai, Saskatchewan, was the last school to finally close its doors. We were the last one? Yeah, so let me say that again. The last residential school closed in 1996, which you've already talked about. Yes. But it happened in our province. Of course it did. Of course it fucking did. It was either going to be us or Alberta. That's true. Indigenous communities, often with church support and since 1998 with government financial assistance, have been carrying out the difficult work of supporting their members with the long-term impact of residential schools, including family breakdown, violence, and aimlessness. The impacts of the residential school experience are intergenerational, which means they are passed on from generation to generation. Parents who were forced to send their children to school had to deal with the devastating effects of separation and total lack of input in the care and welfare of their children. Many of the children suffered abuse atrocities from the staff that were compounded by a curriculum that stripped them of their languages and culture. This caused additional feelings of alienation, shame, and anger that were passed down to their children and grandchildren. The effects of trauma tend to ripple outward from those affected by that trauma to those who surround them. And among residential school survivors, the consequences of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse continue to be felt in each subsequent generation. Deep traumatic wounds exist in the lives of many Indigenous people who were taught to be ashamed just because they were Indigenous. A significant factor in the barrier to the healing process of this trauma is that because of colonization, the elders and healers of the communities, who would have played a vital role in the healing process, were not replaced or were undermined by missionaries. Those who would have provided significant assistance to people experiencing the trauma of residential schools now have less access to those resources. In 2005, the federal government established a $1.9 billion 
compensation package for the survivors of abuse at residential schools. In 2008, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, on behalf of the Canadian government, offered an apology to all former students of residential schools in Canada. The apology recognized that the assimilation policy on which the schools were established was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. This apology, by and large, according to the FacingHistory.org website, was well-received by the representatives of the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who attended the speech. So this brings us back to the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And like I said, it is Call to Action number 80 of the 94 Calls to Action, which is for the federal government to establish a statutory holiday to honor survivors, their families, and communities, and ensure that public commemoration of the history and legacy of the residential schools remains a vital component of the reconciliation process. But we're not doing that in Saskatchewan. September 30th had previously been known as Orange Shirt Day. So this day came about from the actions of Phyllis Webstad, a northern Sikwemic woman. On her first day of residential school, she was wearing a beautiful new orange shirt that had been bought for her by her grandmother. When she arrived, she was forced to remove her shirt, and she never saw it again. For her, the color orange always reminds her of that experience, and how her feelings didn't matter, and how no one cared for her, and she felt like nothing. This September 30th, we here at The Reluctant Historian want to encourage you to wear orange. But more importantly, we want you to take the time to listen with open ears to the stories of survivors and their families, to donate to the Indigenous organizations such as the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. We want you to educate yourself about the lasting effects of the residential school system. So in fact, the University of Alberta offers a free course on Indigenous history with a full module on residential schools, and we'll link it to the show notes so you can do that if you want. And finally, we ask you to examine your relationship and role in the continued oppression of Indigenous people in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, you know, a lot of that I didn't know, Uh, especially I know, like, when you said, like, the sexual abuse thing, I was like, yeah, that's something I didn't, I had no idea about. So I think that this is extremely important, and I think that our frickin' province needs to step up and just be better. Because we're doing a shitty job at most things, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And just, yeah, it's heavy. But, you know, something we gotta, we should know as part of the history of our country. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, in closing, I'll reiterate, just uh, wear an orange shirt on September 30th. And yeah, be be willing to listen and do better. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.